Hey, really good friends. This episode contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more detailed descriptions and take care of yourself. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Historically Really Good Friends, a queer history podcast. I'm Rachel Craig. And I'm Jared Femblow. Hey, you know what I just realized in doing that too? We could just use the same one. So we re-record that intro every time. Yeah. I think it's fun. It changes it up. It it does. I have to like practice in the mirror like different um, intonations of... Mm -hmm. To historically really yeah. good friends, <laughs> you know? And it sounds great every time. It does, because we're great. Unique and fresh. And... Mm-hmm. How, yeah. how are you doing? Are you surviving April? I am. Um, I don't know that I'm thriving, but I'm surviving, <laughs> most definitely. I was just talking at work about how, like, our energy collectively is, like, and both at work and with my group, um, for a project I have at school, we're all like, collectively, our energy is at the level of like completing a project. We're like, wow, we're almost Mm -hmm. done. But that's not correct. We are literally just about to embark on the busiest month for me work and school wise. So it's like not a good sign that like my battery is at about like 23%. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. we're in the home stretch. And like, no, we are not. But are you about to get into finals? Yeah. So we have two term papers due in April and then our two finals in May. So it's like paper and final, which choose one, mm-hmm. first right. of all. You don't get that's, it all. That's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. You make a fucking decision about, do you want a paper or do you want a test? Because like, right. that's not fair. And I have, I'm in a fully online grad program Mm-hmm. And every single class for every single semester so far has had a group project. And that's rude to say yeah, the what, least. What, especially over Zoom, what is the point? I, like, I don't fully know. And so it's really difficult to have like a semester long group project with people you've never met in person. And I'm lucky right. I have a good group, but it's just like difficult to collaborate and like do independent research and then like present virtually over zoom while managing everything else. But it's, I, can, can it's I just weird. say that that is quite literally what we do on this podcast. We research um, and present information over, over computers. To that each other. is true. The research is slightly different. <laughs> like, um, like math research. I, I mean a little bit more like, mm-hmm. um, like, analysis maybe um (laughs) but this is fun learning about like the stuff we're learning about is not as fun for me but Mm -hmm. now jared tell me if if you resonate with this at all which i think you might based on our uh conversations do you ever like watch a movie or a documentary more specifically and you're like i'll throw it all away today and do that thing like do that job or or do that hobby do you ever do that what do, you, what do you mean, throw it all away? Like, everything I'm doing right now, change it up. I hate it. I've decided. My oh, like greatest watch- passion is now that documentary. I see, I see. Like, you watch, like, Marie Kondo or something, and then you're like, I yeah. need to reorganize my entire home. Um, yes. Which I actually did last week. I, I adopted a you? minimalist wardrobe and then um, St- ordered 25 items from Mercari. So. Okay, so that didn't work. No, it didn't. But okay. yeah, same But you were same, doing like spring vein. cleaning. Right, um yeah. no, I, I don't think I do. I kinda I I leave I leave what I see on the TV on the TV. You do? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I don't do that. So it makes being a graduate student fairly difficult because I am like, why am I doing this when I could be instead mm-hmm. doing these twelve other grad programs? Mm-hmm. So that uh, I think affects like I'll be doing my work and mm-hmm. I'll be like actually you know what I've dedicated so much time and resources to this but what if I just changed my entire career path just for fun uh-huh I mean I, so, I definitely do that while I'm like doing dishes right I'll wash like 98% <laughs> of dishes and then I'll have like two forks left and I'm like what if I just didn't do those two what like what did? if I just stop now and it's like what you're almost there just continue just go th- right what is what is that What's going on with that? What, like, why why do we do that? I have no idea. What's Maybe wrong with us? 
I think we, I think you and I, maybe we have a little bit of like a fear of finishing the task, finishing the thing. There was a tweet not too long ago that I saw that was like, my roommate just told me that she was watching The Sound of Music 2. And I was confused and asked her what she meant by The Sound of Music 2. And she said, when they escaped from the Nazis. And the like girl tweeting was like, I had to explain to her that that was the full movie. And she, the like roommate never realized that she only ever watched up to like the intermission. So yeah. she just thought it was like a movie about like a woman that goes to like nanny these kids and then leaves. That's what I thought The Sound of Music was because of that exact reason like we would just end it and i'd be like this is such a fun family look at this look at them they're singing together they're a singing group so you <laughs> missed out so on cute. the whole like real conflict of it all i did until i watched it when i was slightly older and was like um liesel's boyfriend is straight up has a swastika yeah he's his, a straight like, up they're, they're like yeah they're like dancing and i'm like oh wait how did i miss <laughs> that one yeah yeah, yeah. um which I think that's a sort of a good segue to one of the questions I wanted to ask for this week. Okay. Well, it ties into my topic, but okay. what would you say mm-hmm. is like, like split second decision? What would you say is like the gayest country? Oh, uh, uh, Netherlands? I don't know. Okay. That's an interesting choice. That did not pop into my head. That's very... That's the only very reason I say that is because... It was either the Netherlands or someone else that was like the first country to legalize. Is the Netherlands is is like Holland a place anymore? (laughs) Holland? Yeah, like the Netherlands. Is it? That's what I'm asking. The Netherlands as a concept confuses me. Like that's where Amsterdam is. Yes. Okay, so like, what is the Netherlands? Is it a country? Yeah. So what is Amsterdam? Is it a country? (laughs) No, Amsterdam is a city. It's the capital. Okay. 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 It's the capital so what of the is Netherlands. Holland? So what is Holland? Is Holland a country? Well, you're really... T- it's... Okay. <laughs> Let me look this up. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. I get a little... Because I don't think Holland, Holland is a real place anymore. Holland is a geographical region and former province of the western coast of the Netherlands. From the 10th to the 16th century, Holland proper was a unified political region with, within the Holy Roman Empire ruled by the Counts of Holland. That, Okay, boring. Okay. Got it. Answer question answered. So, so if you're Dutch, you're from the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Check, check, check. Okay. I Thank you for answering my my rapid fire Netherlands questions. Legalized gay marriage. Best. The Netherlands. Yeah. So, so the well, Netherlands is your answer to to what is the gayest <sighs> country because they legalized same sex marriage first. I don't know. I'm sorry. Maybe. I'm sorry to have put to put, I, I don't to know. put you on the spot. I mean, there are there are countries out there that are very gay, that are very yeah. queer. Like yeah, but I, I was that's just like, surprised in my research for this week of like how queer it was some countries are on some other country. Yeah, and it just like was countries that I was like, you you surprised me. I don't really know why. I'm but excited yes. to hear about. Are you going to talk mm-hmm. about them or? Uh, I'm going to talk about one specifically. Well, I can't wait to hear about it. Okay. I I'm, I'm, can't wait to tell you about it. Great. Let's jump into it. Okay. This week, I'm going to be telling you about Barbette. And that's what I'll say. Because, all, all right. because the sources kind of give it away. So all right. the sources I'm using this week are an article by Lauren Castro from Texas Monthly called It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Barbette, a gender-bending 1920s aerialist from Round Rock. An article called Swingers by Elaine Liner for the Dallas Observer and the Barbette Wikipedia page. Trusty good old Wikipedia. I love using Wikipedia for these biographies. You are not wrong. Those sources do kind of tell you a lot. Yeah, Yeah, a little bit. The first one. The one by (laughs) Lauren Castro specifically for the Texas Monthly is... Like just it's it's a great article. I recommend everyone go read it after. Um, I heavily rely on it, which is why I only have three sources because it just like really puts everything there. Um, so thank you, Lauren. I appreciate your work. I'm gonna start off with a little bit of a story. Ooh, okay. A young, slender, blonde aerialist hangs only by a thin rope from a trapeze, twisting and turning in the air, never once faltering. The audience clings to the edge of their seats, eyes glued to the woman as she suspends over them wearing a delicately sequined dress and ostrich feather hat. Her porcelain skin is powdered white, 
her lips a dark red, and her high cheekbones rouged. She has a face that instantly makes audience members fall in love with her. Women want to be her. Barbette, the performer, twists herself upside down and slowly descends the rope as an assistant wraps her in a feather shawl when she reaches the ground. As the show ends, the audience breaks out into a thunderous applause. And just like how Barbette ends every performance, she steps forward and removes her blonde curly wig, revealing short brown hair underneath. Barbette is actually a man by the name of Vanderclyde Broadway from Round Rock, Texas. So the most agreed-upon story is that Vanderclyde Broadway is born on December 19, 1899 in Round Rock, Texas as an only child. Vander's mother, Hattie, is only around the age of 20 when she gives birth to Vander, and she is already a widow. Hattie, who's a hat maker, later remarries a man by the name of Samuel E. Loving, a broom factory worker, and together they have five children. Five more children. When Vander is young, Hattie takes him to the circus in Austin, and as soon as he sees the tightrope walkers and aerialists, he knows he's found his calling. Vander walks his mother's steel clothesline for hours and practices his balance on a nearby train rail, pretending he's on a tightrope. He works the hot summers picking cotton in order to afford trips back to Austin to visit the circus time and time again. Vander graduates from high school at the age of 14 as the valedictorian of his class. He is a very smart kid. And Vander later recalls, I was spellbound by it all. And that is when I started to try the trapeze, the wire, the iron jaw, etc. That was for me. After high school, Vander catches the first big break in his circus career in San Antonio, Texas. A famous duo by the name of the Alpharetta Sisters, nicknamed World Famous Aerial Queens, are in need of a new member, as one of the sisters has unexpectedly died. So, he answers the Billboard magazine ad and auditions in San Antonio. At the audition, they agree it's more dramatic for a woman to perform acrobatic stunts. Vander explains, quote, She told me that women's clothes always make a wire act more impressive and asked me if I mind dressing as a girl. I didn't. And that's how it began. And so Vander becomes an Alpharetta sister, dressing like a woman, doing drag, and performing. After some time performing as an Alpharetta sister, Vander joins a circus trio called Erford's Whirling Sensation, where the performers hang from a spinning device by their teeth. And once his jaw has had enough of this, Vander decides to develop a solo act and move to the vaudeville stage, which, for those who don't know, vaudeville is described as a type of entertainment popular chiefly in the U.S. in the early 20th century, featuring a mixture of specialty acts such as burlesque, comedy, and song and dance. And so, Vander takes on this name Barbette, believing that it has this, like, exotic French sound to it, and claims that it could either be a first name or a last name, so it doesn't necessarily lock him into being one gender during his performance. Okay. And so, just to kind of make it clear... I'm going to be using he, him, his pronouns because Vander is a man. He's just a man doing drag. And drag is an entertainment form where people dress in this highly stylized and often feminine way portraying a woman. So he is a man. He's not trans. He's just a man portraying a woman. Barbette debuts his solo act in 1919 at the Harlem Opera House in New York City. This performance, which sounds like it contains trapeze and wire stunts in full drag, flaunts the performer's femininity, almost putting the audience under a spell of this woman's grace, beauty, and skill. And then, at the end of this performance, Barbette stuns the audience with the move that would become his signature closer, taking off his wig, flexing his muscles, and showing them off, deliberately emphasizing his masculinity. And during the 1920s, amongst this like creative upper-class audience, this gender fluidity seems to be widely accepted. So when the wig comes off, the the crowd's fire is only fueled more. Like, they absolutely love Barbette. So it's like an added entertainment factor of it sort of being like a trick or like an added part of the act. Right, like like just this like stunning reveal. Like, oh, we thought it was a woman this whole time, but it was actually a man. Like, whoa, and it's not seen as this like, Okay. Oh, a man's pretending to be like trying to trick right. us being a woman. Like they're kind of like amazed that they, okay. they didn't catch on to it. Okay. Gotcha. Thanks to the success of his solo act for the next few years, Barbette tours the Keith Vaudeville circuit, which owns about 1500 theaters across the U S and Canada. And his act is advertised as a versatile specialty. 
word of Barbette's skills spreads, and he signs with the William Morris Agency, which is a talent agency now known as WME, and it's one of the world's biggest talent agencies. In 1923, the agency sends Barbette to London and then to Paris, performing his one-woman act, captivating audiences across Europe. His name seemingly overnight appears on marquees, playbills, and circus posters. He performs his act at the Casino de Paris, the Moulin Rouge, the Empire, the Madrano Circus, the Alhambra Theater, and the Cabaret Hall, Foley's Bear Share. He becomes a featured attraction with Ringling Bros and Barnum and Bailey Circus, touring London, Brussels, and Berlin. And during this tour, while performing at the London Palladium, Barbet is actually found having sex with another man, and his contract is instantly voided, and he's unable to ever obtain a work permit for England ever again. Oh, jeez. But still, all of Europe is moved by Barbet. He is, like, the absolute sensation, and such an incredibly skilled performer, he makes it look effortless every time he performs. One person in particular enamored by Barbet is Jean Cocteau, a French esteemed poet, filmmaker, and critic. Cocteau writes to a friend calling Barbette a great actor, an angel, one of the most beautiful things in theater, and he falls madly in love with Barbette and the image of her whilst on the stage. The closest Barbette would ever come to speaking about his sexuality publicly is when he writes, quote, certain parts of my nature were known to me before I became Barbette. Nevertheless, the two begin a secret whirlwind romance, Cocteau documents his affections for Barbette in an essay entitled Le Numero Barbette, as well as in letters to many of his friends. Cocteau commissions a series of photographs by famed surrealist artist Man Ray, capturing Barbette's performance and also his process of turning into his female persona. Cocteau also casts Barbette in an experimental film where he replaces a Vicomptus originally cast in the part, which is like a pretty big deal. He's dressed in Chanel and is just like basically there to look gorgeous. Barbette follows a punishingly strict exercise and diet routine to keep a lean feminine figure and Cocteau is especially attracted to this. He calls Barbette his greatest muse, adorning him with attention and constant praise. But their love affair is short-lived. A Dallas Observer article cites, quote, the reality of Vander's gender, end quote, to be the cause of their doomed relationship. And it seems like Cocteau may have been in love more with Barbette and the concept of her more than he was in love with Vanderclyde Broadway. Yeah, it sounds a little bit obsessive and and it doesn't seem like it was maybe had the purest intentions at the outset. Right, it was more just this like the woman who everyone wants to be and the woman everyone who wants to be with like that it was like what he needed to have i guess to feel like like i can have it right and the fact that that was a character that wasn't who he was as a human person and who he would be in a relationship i think probably led to some issues right and it was reported that barbette used the name barbette off stage sometimes but it wasn't like like that's not who like vanderclyde broadway and barbette were very much two different people right right. but there was some crossover and i think that crossover is kind of what led to the end of their relationship Mm -hmm. and despite cocteau's attention and constant praise barbette writes quote this was the real accomplishment the deep gratification to go before an audience of say three thousand and hold them for 15 minutes nothing could compare or compete with this so it also seems like barbette like Although was into this relationship at the same time, what he truly loved was performing and being in front of an audience. Right. Yeah, it certainly seemed like Barbette was finding fulfillment uh, through the stage and didn't necessarily need or want a relationship at the time. Right. It was like cool beans. Right, right. And then it seems like Cocteau was like obsessed with the character yeah. and not really ready to be in an adult relationship. relationship with a with a with a person. Exactly. That's exactly it. And the Texas Monthly article recalls what they labeled the wildest Barbette story, and it's part of the Barbette lore, and it goes something like this. During one of his performances, a Russian sailor in the audience falls in love with Barbette. And when Barbette removes his wig, the sailor is so distraught that he shoots himself right then and there, ending his own life. 
And while it may not be true, it definitely is like this hyperbolized version of how people feel about Barbette. Like they are just- Right. It's, it's like an allegory for the whole like experience right. of watching the performance. Right. Like it's like Barbette like is, Barbette is just like the person and the moment and the thing. People cannot get enough of him. Right. It's just like a mesmerizing performance. It seems like people are really just like enchanted by the whole thing. And then like can't process it after the fact. And I think it's because he's such a professional. Like he has dedicated multiple decades to this craft. Like he, I don't, he just, there's something so natural about him being an aerialist Mm -hmm. that I think it kind of just wows people so much that they're stunned with like what they're seeing. I'm also imagining it, it in a split second is like shattering people's concept of gender for a second yeah. because if he is doing all of this dieting and is a fantastic acrobat and at the time this type of aerialist and right. like acrobatics were exclusively done by or like primarily done by women right. to see someone execute it probably so well and model that figure and that look and then like to see it be revealed as a man is probably like that's not possible in my concept of this it's shattering the illusion which is what drag is all about is an illusion right you're being like a hyper feminized or you know some people are you're being a hyper whatever version of what you take a woman to be and so right what he's portraying is this gorgeous blonde woman this like petite figure and then all of a sudden is like shattering this illusion and showing off his muscles and flexing. And it's just like in a split second, like you were saying, like everyone's like, what is happening? Right. So it's just like a great spectacle. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a fantastic performance because he's wonderful at the job, mm-hmm. but also the added factor of, like you said, that like illusion. Exactly. And one night while performing at the Moulin Rouge in 1929, A billowing curtain distracts Barbette during the show, causing him to fall, and as a result, he's injured. Barbette is able to recover and continue performing for a while. It's reported that he continues to perform until the mid to late 1930s, although this exact year is disputed. There is extremely rare footage of Barbette in 1935 performing in the circus musical Jumbo on Broadway, but eventually his body begins to fail him. The decades of pushing his body to the physical extreme every single week is really taking a toll on him. And in 1938, Barbette is diagnosed with pneumonia and polio, further weakening him. He is in incredible amounts of pain and in need of surgery and extensive rehabilitation. He spends about 18 months in the hospital learning how to walk again. Like he goes from this amazing performer that's using his body and doing all these things to someone that is like in a matter of you know, a year or two, like learning, having to learn how to rewalk. Like it just absolutely destroys him and his career as an aerialist. But luckily, Barbette pulls through and makes enough of a recovery to continue working, not as an aerialist, but rather as an artistic director and aerialist trainer slash coach for a number of circuses, including the Ringling Bros and the Shrine Circus. He moves between Hollywood, Paris, Austin, and Round Rock for these jobs. He also serves as a consultant on a number of films to help with the circus sequences, and he's also hired to coach Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis on Gender Illusion for the 1959 film Some Like It Hot, starring Marilyn Monroe. So he's brought on because he's this like professional of gender illusion. Right, which was part of last week's research that I did not include in the Hayes Code, mm-hmm. that that movie specifically with those actors was kind of an important piece in in the Hayes Code because it involved that kind of illusion right. and, and sort of like gender performance. Right, so it's, it's really big. It's a cultural moment. Mm-hmm. Barbette eventually returns home to Round Rock, Texas, where he lives with his sister and nephew, Unfortunately, from the many years of having a physically exhausting career, the injury and the illnesses, Barbette deals with excruciating and debilitating chronic pain daily. During this period, around 1969, he's the subject of a profile in The New Yorker. The writer Francis Stieg Moeller notes that when they meet, Barbette is sharply dressed and a great conversationalist, but his movements are stiff and a bit jerky, and he has a scar on his face from the fall. 
Barbette describes his act during their conversation, saying he designed it to be a mix of feminine and masculine to be an act of beauty. Four years after the story is published, in August of 1973, Barbette is found dead at the age of 73 from an intentional drug overdose. Not only was Barbette an immense inspiration for Jean Cocteau and fellow artists in their essays, plays, photographs, and other materials, but it's also thought that he was the inspiration for the 1933 German film Victor und Victoria, which is eventually remade in 1982 as Victor Victoria starring Julie Andrews, coming full circle with The Sound of Music. Nowadays, not many people know the name Barbette, but back in the 1920s and 1930s, Barbette was the moment. He was a gender-bending vaudeville superstar, capturing the hearts of Europeans city by city. But the hidden gem from Round Rock, Texas, I hope soon won't be so hidden anymore, and will continue to live through the legacy he left behind. And that is the story of Barbette. Yes, I love that story. And it's true, I didn't know who that was. Me neither. And I think it's also interesting, especially in like the past I don't know, 10 years when, like, I think movies and, like, popular media hasn't been, like, all that creative and it's just, like, reusing these interesting stories mm-hmm. from the past. Why this wouldn't have been maybe one of them. Right. Um, because it seems to be so, like, mesmerizing and, and like, yeah. enchanting of a story at, at its peak, it could totally be that again now. Right. And it was for me today. Right. Thank you. And it's, it's a... He has a very sad ending and he suffers a lot towards the end of his life, but truly at like the peak of his career. And, you know, even when he was like a kid, like he is so successful and just like kind of doing his thing. And like, I don't know, people just loved him. And so it was just a really incredible and inspirational story to read about. And I literally found Barbette by searching, like Googling like queer circus performers because I knew I wanted to do something like a little bit more fun and he popped up. Right. Had right. I not specifically Googled that. Searched, like, sought it out. Yeah. Right. He, like, he didn't come up on any of the, you know, like, 15 people from history that you need to know. Right. Like, he just right. is not there. And there are people in Round Rock, Texas, that are fighting to get, like, a statue of him put up and are fighting for his legacy to hey. be, a, like, publicized a little bit more. Um, so I hope okay. they are successful in that fight soon. Yes. All right, Round Rock, Texas. Let's do it. I support you specifically in that i I don't know what else is going on around the area i support you in that fight for for sure yes i also think this is a wonderful story in like maybe the performance or like circus performance specific area Mm -hmm. too because the stories were told about them a lot or that we hear are like really honestly fucked up like this was a person choosing and willing and able to perform and then express their identity like his identity and the way he wanted to with that performance whereas I think a lot of other performers at the time whether like vaudeville performers or like specifically circus performers were like disabled and being exploited for those things and like that's what the that movie with the music and Hugh Jackman is the greatest showman yes so like that whole story it was a great music fun story all those things but that was telling a story about performers who were exploited. Whereas right. this instead, like alternatively, was a story about someone who found their passion and was willing and able to do that job super well and and, and profit like, mystify and like, so many people. Yeah. Right. And I think there definitely is something to note that he was a white cis man right. pretending to be a woman and profiting greatly off of that. So like definitely there are there is still all of that privilege in the story i don't think it's uh we should forget that definitely not that but that's i think probably another interesting factor into why a story like this wouldn't have been maybe platformed slightly more when looking for those same types of stories right that was a thank you for sharing that story glad to have learned something that i probably would have gone my whole life not knowing So this week I'm talking about Die Freundin, which is a magazine, and Mm. there are going to be, as you can tell maybe from my poor pronunciation to begin with, there's going to be a lot of German um, names in this. Which is your first language. Which is, yes. um, I am a native German speaker. 
um, if you couldn't tell. So I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try to get through them as best as possible. Um, I'm sorry if I mispronounce anything. I have made an, a concerted effort. I I really have. <laughs> so that doesn't mean it's gonna be good, but I put uh, the the, the effort is there. Okay. Yes. Sources I used for today include the Google Arts and Culture page for Defreunden, Tag Magazine's LGBTQ History Series article on Defreunden by Katie Ray and A. Brown, the Lachma Unframed article entitled Homosexuality is a German Invention by Nana Ballman, the blog It's a Queer Feeling, and as always, the Wikipedia page for Defreunden. Nice. So we're listening this afternoon, this evening, whenever you're listening, about The Girlfriend, Journal for Ideal Friendship Between Women, or as it was better known in German, Die Freundin, the first lesbian magazine that was widely produced. I didn't know that. Yeah, so you just, you really did just look at the title and then I like, truly was like, out. cool. Yeah, so we're talking about like a magazine today. So Die Freundin gets its start during the Weimar Republic era phase, like moment. Oh, we're saying moment a lot today. It just struck me. I like had that written down already. Okay. So uh-huh. we're in a moment moment. Of course. The Weimar Republic was the state of affairs and like the current political experience for Germany just about post-World War One and into World War Two from 1919 to 1933. So that's kind of like where we're at. Okay, so it's very similar it's like the exact time period as Barbat. Yeah, the exact time period. And like, we're in Germany too. So this time period was like, has a lot of very specific historical context for Germany at this time, like coming out of their involvement in World War One, mm-hmm. and then like their transition in government and politics and things like that before mm-hmm. World War Two, And like Europe was kind of all over the place. So yeah, yeah, it's interesting that both of our subjects kind of fall within that. Mm-hmm. time period for this week again mm-hmm. unintentional the magazine was started in 1924 in berlin the capital of germany by the publisher and this is where the name is going to be there's like so many syllables too so the publisher bund für menschenrecht menschenrecht oh of course Men- B- menschenrecht or bfm as we can refer to them please yeah so from here on out bfm was a collective of over forty-eight thousand queer members led by activist friedrich wadzuit mm. he was a wonderful activist and leader of the bfm and was also the creator of Die Freundin and several other magazines which were focused on queer education and activism. This magazine specifically had its own little office open from 9am to 6pm, which for some reason is a fact I wanted to include because I felt it was very cute. It was just like... They had their little they were office space in, in Berlin. Little brick and, like, and mortar building. Yeah. Like they were open for business. They were doing it. Yeah, I just find it. I don't know. It was something I wanted to put in there. Okay. And then it functioned similarly to like a weekly newspaper. There were different columns and it was geared towards an audience of single, professional, like educated lesbians in Berlin. That's so cool. Yeah. yeah. So Die Freundin and others that were also published by BFM and branded towards queer people, like they didn't very subtly discuss dance clubs that were safe for gay and trans people, political issues affecting the queer and broader German community. And they even had classifieds where folks could take out personal ads looking for like partners. And knowing all of this, they were displayed pretty openly at like newsstands across the city. So Berlin, which is where all these magazines were produced and also distributed, was sort of a hub for progressive like gay activism in Europe, which going back to our earlier topic, surprised me. Yeah. Like Germany during this period of time being uh, progressive in any way was right. shocking a little right. bit to me. I know that Berlin nowadays is very queer as well, but back then, like you're saying in that time period, that's a, that's a shock that they're just being so like open and like discussing it willingly. Yeah. And so like, I will say, even though they are progressive and it's interesting to know that it's, it's similar to that now too, they weren't accepting. Let's Mm. say like there were still the same kind of like sodomy and like anti-homosexuality laws and all of those things. And so I kind of wonder if 
the way that these publications were allowed to be so open or like exist in this way um, very publicly were what we've kind of come back to quite often in talking about this of people being like, oh, look, how fun, cute. Look at those good friends hanging mm. out. This looks interesting. Or like, this looks benign, Sure, let's say. Like, this this isn't anything. We could just like let it go. On the other hand, it could also just be like a flagrant act of resistance of being like, we're here that's and true. like, fuck it. Like, we're publishing. Yeah, that's definitely true too. So nonetheless, there was like a lot of these magazines kind of floating around many of them though were geared specifically towards gay men Mm -hmm. and so there was definitely a niche to be filled when talking about like the lesbian experience at the time and the trans experience and things like that right and thus was kind of born defreunded and it actually sounds kind of like an interesting I said interesting read it's like it's it is like a weekly magazine but they had a lot of different subjects and things like that they didn't have a specific editorial staff or regular writers instead they kind of solicited readers to serve as the contributors to the magazine some of the writers though were notable for the time so there were some like famous activists and writers including Sally Angler and Lottie Ham who were two of the main activists within the German lesbian movement of the time ultimately though the magazine itself didn't serve as a huge source of queer activism or momentum for the women's movement happening at the time or political involvement. Instead, though, many readers gravitated towards it, one, because they felt seen and had a space to kind of connect with one another and share their experiences through the magazine, and two, because of its literary contribution. So the magazine was structured with sections dedicated to nonfiction current events, homosexuality, lesbian identity, the women's movement, politics fiction, classifieds, personal ads, and event postings. They had a lot. They were doing it all. Wow, they are like really covering all of their bases. They are like, we're not leaving any topic untouched by a queer voice. Like we are getting in there. Yes, they're, they're, they were really covering everything. And while some had less engagement than others, some of the sections, like sure. it's also funny because most of the sections were like current events and politics. They're like, we like literally don't care. We don't care about those things. Thank you. Not Sometimes interested. Sometimes it's just too much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were like, we're not interested. But what they were very interested in and what I think made or it's reported made the publication so popular was the fiction stories that were included. So readers would submit short stories, essays, poems, all on like romance and lesbian love. They would also then provide book reviews and recommendations. It was kind of like a little book club or sort of like newsletter. And also, as I was thinking about this, I feel like... I don't know this. I don't know if the magazine, I guess the magazine still exists, but I feel like currently or at one time Playboy or like one of those penthouse type magazines kind of had some fiction section with stories and things. So they stole it. They stole it from this. Yeah. So I have a bunch of vintage Playguy magazines, which is like Playboy, but for gay men. So there's Playboy, Playgirl, and Playguy. Okay. And Playguy is like the gay version. Right. And in all of those magazines, there are like fiction stories and like they're kind of good. Yeah. So that's kind of, that's exactly what this is. So I don't know if it originated here. I won't say that it was stolen from this, but that was it definitely, definitely like what- It definitely sounds like they stole it from Freuden. Yeah. So, so that definitely existed here and what kept a lot of people engaged in it. So I think it definitely probably was a little bit of that like smutty sort of like yeah. written porn type things. Yeah, it keep it holds the attention. It also described these sort of like utopias too of like just a place where people could exist. <laughs> so I think a lot of it was just like the romanticization of a lot of different aspects of life at the time. So along the same lines, they detailed true lesbian experiences rather than fed into stereotypes at the time. And it was all driven by the readers and the women in Berlin. So they were submitting these stories, whether they were the kind of like detailed utopias or they were just like their kind of narrative experiences. It was all kind of there. And then other sections of this magazine that kind of separated Die Freuden from some other magazines at the time were the specific classifieds, personal ads, and event postings. 
The classifieds were a space for local businesses to advertise as well as submit job postings very similar to how they would be today, except that the businesses within Defreundin had to be approved by the BFM, again, the publisher. And because of that, they were essentially vetted completely and like within the network that knew that readers would be safe to kind of be patrons there and work there. This reciprocal relationship created and fostered this network of businesses across Berlin that were recognized by the BFM as good spots for readers of all of their kind of queer-centered magazines. Also, Die Freundin has a personal ad section, which featured, as you may think, short ads where women could search for partners. Some of those ads, which read very much like Tinder bios, included Miss, 28 years old, looking for an educated girlfriend, woman wishes sincere friendship with a well-disposed lady, and where to meet a girl of higher circle, possibly private. Which this woman is straight up like, I'm looking for a sugar mommy, hit me up. Yeah. Like, I'm here. And honestly, get it. Do yeah. it. Publish like, it. Like, they, like, tell the publisher, write that in. You know? Yeah, exactly. Like, they were being transparent. They were being upfront. Yeah. 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 And it sounds anonymous. So it feels like mm-hmm. the like shame of that is not existent. Yeah. It's kind of Just like, kind of... this is truly what I'm looking for. Go yeah, for her. exactly. We love it. But yeah. the kind of differences in personal ads were, it was still under the personal ad category, but they had the separation of what they called companion ads, which were for lesbian women and gay men to seek out a companion to marry as a form of protection from prosecution under the country's strict homosexuality and sodomy laws. So differentiations of those personal ads would kind of look like this companion ad example, 27-year-old, of good origin, double orphan, respectable, looking for a wealthy lady companion, also a business owner. So there were like certain key kind of like phrases that were able to distinguish between the two so that you could kind of know what you were looking for, like while reading or while submitting a personal ad. So that was a man submitting that for a woman? Yeah, it sounds like it. I wasn't completely sure, but it does sound like it because it like it doesn't specify a gender of the writer, whereas Mm. the other personal ads did. We're like a... 27-year-old woman looking for a woman. This right. was, like, just looking for a woman. Exactly. Yeah. And um, it specifically uses the word companion as well. So the mm. other ones will say looking for, like, if I go back up, some of them were saying looking to meet mm-hmm. or looking for a private place to meet or things like that, whereas this one is, like, looking for a companion. It feels more business transactional like this is what specifically what i need yeah for safety that makes sense yeah exactly and then the other thing was those bfm kind of approved event postings which listed dance clubs and other meeting places for what was called the women's club of berlin where sometimes over 300 women would gather and hold events like readings and performances and discussions Mm -hmm. yeah so it was a lot i think another one of the reasons why and we talk about i'll talk about a little bit later some of the challenges that the the magazine faced while it was like running Mm -hmm. but i think some of the reason why people maybe allowed like non-queer people who in the government especially who would have probably squashed a lot of this allowed it to go on was because the events published and a lot of the content was still fairly conservative towards women Mm. so the events that were sponsored were things like readings or discussions or performances because it was still like as women you are still expected not to be drinking or engaging in other social party type events you can go to these more educational, quieter type things. Right. Nonetheless, though, during its time in print, the magazine was very popular throughout Berlin, and it even is assumed to be the most widely spread lesbian magazine of the Weimar Republic, with over 10,000 copies in circulation at one time. Wow. It did face some criticism, as I had said, from the government, claiming that its content was obscene. Eventually, in 1929, to combat some of this, the title was changed to Liebig Freuden, which translates to single women. 
but the mm. magazine kept operating like it was the same magazine just kind of like a mm-hmm. rebrand sure so from that sort of rebrand happened in 1929 and it kept operating until 1933 when hitler was appointed chancellor and assumed power effectively mm-hmm. ending all of the queer journals and magazines there were a lot of laws that came out specifically targeting the magazines that were going around and were in publication at the time and there were also no longer safe meeting locations dance clubs bars and performances of course at that time records of readers detail the importance of the magazine and and the impact that it had on them as well as some of its imperfections that were recognized at the time and for readers who discover it after the fact Some folks shared, quote, through this magazine, I learned valuable information about myself and that I was in no way unique in this world. And also, quote, for years, I have searched in vain for a source of entertainment, which brings our kind of people closer to each other through the means of word and writing. The sisters make hours of solitude worthwhile when I visit Hildesheim, which was a very like religious small town. Though some lesbians who were living in Berlin at the time were not able to find the same comfort in Die Freundin because they never knew it existed, even though it was so popular. Charlotte Wolf, who did live in Berlin at this time, said, quote, I never heard of Die Freundin at the time of its publication, a sure sign of the mystery surrounding its appearance, even though gay films and plays were fashionable in the 1920s. Die Freundin was obviously an illegitimate child who did not dare share its face publicly. The lesbian world that depicted it had little in common with the gay women I knew and the places I frequented. Their readers came from another class who loved, drank, and danced in another world, unquote. So for some, it was very popular and accessible. For others, they never knew that there was something like this out there, and it just didn't resonate with them in the same way. It didn't provide them spaces that it did for some other folks. And another thing was that though the magazine featured ads directed towards gay men and trans people as well as its primary audience of lesbians, the magazine was at the time definitely not inclusive to non-lesbian readers and perpetrated some harmful stereotypes about gender and sexuality that were floating around at the time. For example, in one of the contributions that was submitted by a reader, they shared Quote, many of the girls one meets at the club are not all homosexual. They are bisexual or perhaps just curious. In any case, they just want to experience something. Their uncontrollable passions spur them on. It is then that they reach out for a woman's love, which was from a copy issued in 1928. Mm. But this was kind of common at the time for bisexuality to be recognized, but not as a sexuality. Straight people would see it as like confusion or corruption. And queer people saw it as like this unfair trick or dishonesty that someone was was doing to kind of like yeah. get in. And, and we kind of still see this narrative today, sure. but it was definitely part of that. So I don't think everyone was able to find something within the magazine. Sure. But all that to say, it seems like Die Freundin, which was, again, the first lesbian magazine, was very much like fan fiction it was like very 1925 wattpad you know like (laughs) it gave people it gave people this chance to express themselves and find comfort in a lesbian utopia that likely didn't match the reality of the time Mm -hmm. and for some people that's what they needed and they felt seen and valued by that and for others they may not have felt the same thing Mm -hmm. nonetheless it was very popular and i can't wait to go look at all of these old more of these old clippings of it the fonts are wild good wild fonts yeah yeah but they're like too many different ones but oh. <laughs> but but very cool there were also a lot of um bare um boobs so i don't know how many we'll be able to oh. include include um on instagram because i don't know what their like nipple mm-hmm. censorship is like but yeah i'm very excited to go strict yeah to keep uh, seen some of them so yeah that was defreunden wow that's i n- never knew that that sort of thing existed because my little pea brain um, <laughs> only had knowledge of like queer magazines going back as far as like the 1950s maybe yeah you know, so and and in my research too there was something as early a publication again in berlin which was very shocking as early as 
1896, I want to say. Wow. I'll have to look into that one more and maybe yeah. include it in a different episode. But okay. it was very interesting that this was there was a lot of different things circulating at the time, specifically directed yeah. at queer readers. Queer people, yeah. Mm-hmm. And especially it feels like, and I know you said that they had different magazines or different publications for different like communities in the queer community. But the fact that there was one dedicated to lesbians and that was so particular, I feel like is almost as shocking as the fact that it even existed because it definitely feels like lesbians throughout history were so forgotten and so like downplayed and so diminished. Like it just wasn't like, it just wasn't seen as this like a real thing. So the fact that there is written proof and that we have copies of it and yeah, it sucks that for some readers, they couldn't identify with it. Maybe it felt like classist or it felt Mm -hmm. just like completely out of touch with their personal reality. But the fact that it was around and existed for some people feels so groundbreaking. It feels so huge. There is validity in the fact that there were queer people in Berlin in the certain time period. You know, it's just... Definitely. And it it was huge because... This is before, like, a Mm -hmm. collective movement towards lesbian visibility. 48,000 people or whatever number you gave it. That's a lot of people. This was before these movements in America, in Europe. And as I was reading it, too, it talked about a lot of the sources were talking about how the people weren't really super, the readers weren't really super engaged in the political discussion or women's movements or all those things. But as I was reading, I was like, yeah, but it doesn't need to be that. Everything at the time, I think it feels like maybe because this was a first and there were a lot of firsts happening, it felt like every single thing has to be also on the forefront of groundbreaking activism and Mm -hmm. advocacy. But this was really just a space for for lesbian women in Berlin to say, we exist, there are other people out there, and to feel a sense of community and not necessarily having to do anything with that besides feel it. Right, right. Just be able to express whatever you're feeling that's not politically charged and not, exactly. you know, having like a motive for everything, which... I mean, in and of itself, I think it can be considered political and resistance and, you know, radical to be making a publication, especially in a time period that was so oppressive or, you know, like moving towards oppression. So in in and of itself, inherently, it can be seen as radical or, you know, right. politically charged. But because it was just them existing, like, right. and just like being they, themselves, like that's what makes it, I think, so special, like. It just was what it was. Exactly. For the people statement, that needed it to just be, yeah. Right. The statement is is it is its existence. And right. that's that's kind of what we can sort of take away from it. Like knowing that it was there and those women were there and the BFM was there. Right. That that's kind of the the lesson out of it, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well let's go. I'm gonna I'm going to do some research on it. I want to see, not bare boobs, um, but I, not that I have anything against bare boobs, but I I, I want to go see what, what it looks like. Yeah, what the you got to check out the fonts. Like. You got to check out the fonts. Yes, yeah. that's what I'm going for. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks for tuning in to episode 10 of Historically Really Good Friends, where we talked about feminine figures in and around Europe. This is your weekly reminder that acknowledging the queerness of our history makes dangling by your teeth from a spinning device a little bit more fun. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. To see photos from this week's episode, make sure to check out our Instagram at historicallyreally, and we hope to see you again next week. Bye!